If you'll open your Bibles to Judges 19, the last section, uh, the last part of the outline says people without a king. And last week we made note that that thought is found in a number of places in the book of Judges. And it begins in chapter 19 again, in those days Israel had no king. If you look to the last verse of the entire book, the 21st chapter and the 25th verse, you'll see a thought that is repeated again and again in Judges. In those days Israel had no king, everyone did as they saw fit. Now, we find God's grace from Judges 1 through Judges 21, all the way through. It's been one of the themes of the book of Judges, and we'll conclude with a bit of a summary in in just a few moments. But some of the stories that we found in Judges are shocking to our sensibilities. And if it is, then perhaps you have caught a glimpse of how shocking our sin is in the eyes of God. And so the picture that we have in Judges is just what can happen to a people who are supposed to know God, but make the choice of turning away from Him. And here's what can happen to them. Now, I've said many times from the pulpit that I'm capable, if I don't guard my walk with Jesus, I know I am capable of almost anything. And I suspect that you are also. So we guard our walk. We lay ourselves completely upon the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the one who gives us the gift of faith that we believe in Jesus and then continues to give us the gift of grace and faith as we proceed through life so that we can be a reflection of what it means to be a Christian. Now, in this 19th chapter and 20 and 21, we find um, an amazing amount of violence and hatred. And the book closes with that desperate note, everyone did what they saw fit in their own eyes. So last week, briefly, we were introduced in, in chapter 19 to a Levite. Now, a Levite is a priest. He's a holy man. He's a man of God. Therefore, we would sort of expect behavior that is circumspect. But we find that this Levite, according to verse 1, lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim, and he took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And it says she was unfaithful to him. Um, I'm not sure that he could have, should have expected anything else. She left him and went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem of, of Judah. Now, um, for this Levite to take a concubine meant he saw her as a second-class wife who is a sex object for his own lust. And he's a priest. And he's a man of God. So we are immediately appalled by his behavior. She leaves him. She goes home. And after four months, as I'll not reread all the scripture that we read last week, 
After four months, the Levite goes after her, goes to her home in Bethlehem. Much to the delight of her father, he is very glad to see his uh, so-called son-in-law. And he makes a five-day visit in the home. Didn't intend to stay that long, but as we read the text, the the father keeps asking him to stay a little longer. So it turns into a five-day visit. And all of that is disturbing. However, we have not seen anything yet. Finally, the Levite takes his concubine and he leaves to go home. And the dark, spiritually dark picture is about to get much darker. And the Levite sees her not as a person, but as an object to be owned. And if you wonder why I think that, just hold on for a few more moments and it will become clear. They go to Jebus, which we know as Jerusalem. But the Levite and his concubine and their servant who is with them uh, will not stop there because Jerusalem is still a Canaanite city and the Levite didn't feel safe there even though there seemed to be a political accommodation between the Canaanites and the Israelites basically that made the Israelites semi-slaves to the Canaanites. So they move on and they come to Gibeah which is an Israelite town so Your heart leaps and you think, aha, they'll be safe and sound in Gibeah. A great choice to avoid Jerusalem and go on to Gibeah. They went to the city square. You're accustomed from the study of Scripture to knowing what Middle Eastern hospitality and custom is that when someone, a a stranger, comes into the town, they go to the town square then the people of that city are to offer them hospitality by inviting them to come and stay with them at their own home. We find that very odd. But that was, and to some degree, still is Middle Eastern custom. So the thought that the Levite, his servant, and his concubine would go to the city square and not only would no one invite them to stay with them, no one would even speak to them, leads you to wonder, what is it that is amiss in this town. This is strange. This is unusual Israelite behavior. Well, it will become clear shortly exactly what the problem is, but something is wrong. If this were a movie, this is the point at which they would begin to play the creepy music in the background (laughs) that kind of lets you know, oh, this is not right. This is not good. No one speaks to them. But finally, a man who's, this is not even his uh, ancestral home, but he lives there now in, in Gibeah. He comes, sees them, talks to them, and takes them home. But there's still this sense that something is amiss. Well, the Levite finds out what is amiss when he discovers that he has chosen to stop and spend the night in a Sodom and Gomorrah-like city. For as he is enjoying dinner with his newfound friend, Suddenly men come to the door and begin to bang on the door and ask that the owner of the home send out the Levite that they might have homosexual sex with him. So I invite you to look at verse 22 of chapter 19. Perhaps one hand to point to the text, the other to hold on to your chair. 
While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, Bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, No, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this outrageous thing. Now, before I read the really shocking part, understand that this man is exemplifying, to an excessive degree, but exemplifying the importance of Middle Eastern hospitality. He has invited the Levite into his house, and to mistreat that Levite is contrary to all Middle Eastern rules of hospitality. So he says, no, no, I cannot send my guest out for you to abuse him. But shockingly, look what he does say. It is amazing to me that this man would treasure hospitality above his own daughter. So he says in verse 24, Look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now, and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But as for this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. I don't really know what to say, except that we see the depravity of the Israelite people exemplified in those who have surrounded the house and in the owner of the house. Now, someone once said to me, Pastor, maybe he knew that he wouldn't have to send his daughter out because he knew they really wanted a male. And so maybe he really knew he was safe. Um, and I don't know how to respond to that except to say safe or not, I would have never done that. Not, not with my daughter. Well, verse 25, the men would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine this is the Levite now, and sent her outside to them. Therefore, I'll stop that. Therefore, we know he, he did not love her. She was his second-class wife, one that he simply used to gratify his sexual desires. He didn't love her. If he loved her, he would have never done such a thing. But he sent her out, and they raped her, and they abused her throughout the night, and at dawn, they let her go. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master, now we've got the right word, where the master was staying, fell down at the door and lay there until daylight. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, I don't like this guy at all. I don't like him at all. He's going to go. He's just going to go home. No thought about this woman. He's just going to go. Also, I'd like to know, how did he sleep? How, how could a man go to bed and sleep when he knew what was going on outside the house? I, you talk about the depravity of man. <laughs> Here's a... Excellent example. 
But before he could continue on his way, there lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let's go. Somebody ought to whip him, I'm telling you. Get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. Now, at this point, you ask a question, is she dead or alive? Yes. I'm going to say she's dead because of what happens next. Now, you may want to take both hands and put them on your chair now. When he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine, limb by limb, into 12 parts and sent them into all the areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it was saying to one another, such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Just imagine, we must do something, so speak up. Hmm, Okay. Now, just pause there for a moment. The men of the city try to get the Levite to come out for homosexual sex. The host refuses, offers his daughter and the Levite's concubine. The men refuse. They want a male. But ultimately, the Levite, remember, he's a man of God. The Levite sent his concubine out and and they abused her all night long. And, And then, you know, you know what happened next. She didn't move, although the scripture doesn't conclusively tell us she's dead. I'm pretty confident that she was because of what he does next. So they left for home, and this is sick, and it's hard to imagine how it could be any worse than this. Now, why, other than his depravity, why did the Levite cut up his concubine, and send body parts to the 12 tribes of Israel. Notice their reaction, verse 30. This is a sign of vengeance. It's the message he's delivering. Because he loved her? No, he didn't love her. She was his property and her death cost him money. And he is going to get vengeance if it's the last thing he ever does. This is sickening, but it shows us Israel's desperate spiritual condition. It's a, it's a literal living picture of that. Now we go to chapter 20 and let's look at the first seven verses. And if we're going to finish today, I'm not going to be able to read all the rest of the verses. I, I invite you to do that, but look. At verse 1, then all Israel from Dan to Beersheba, when you see those words, that points, that means all of it, everybody, all Israel, Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south, from the land of Gilead came together as one and assembled before the Lord in Mizpah. The leaders of all the people of the tribes of Israel took their places in the assembly of God's people, 400,000 men armed with swords. The Benjamites heard that the Israelites had gone up to Mitzvah. Now, the reason the Benjamites aren't there, they're on the other side, is because Gibeah is a Benjamite, a Benjamite. I've always had trouble with that, Benjamite city. So you've got the tribe of Benjamin on one side and all the rest of Israel on the other. 
So they heard they've gone up to Mitzvah. Then the Israelites said, tell us how this awful thing happened. Now, I want you to watch what the Levite says. Don't be confused by him at all. Integrity is not a hallmark of this man. So notice what he says. The Levite, so the Levite, the husband of the murdered woman, loosely interpreted husband, said, I and my concubine came to Gibeah in Benjamin to spend the night. During the night, the men of Gibeah came after me and surrounded the house intending to kill me. They raped my concubine and she died. Something's left out of that. So he's wanting to make himself look as good as he can. I took my concubine, cut her into pieces, and sent one piece to each region of Israel's inheritance because they committed this lewd and outrageous act in Israel. Now, all you Israelites, speak up and tell me what you have decided to do. Wow. <laughs> okay. He edits the story. Not, not surprising. So there's going to be violence. There's going to be war. There's going to be revenge. It really is a, a, a sort of a civil war because it's within the family. That is within Israel. So Israel unites against the tribe of Benjamin because Gibeah is a Benjamite city. Benjamin refuses to allow punishment for the rapists because that's the first approach. Let us punish the guilty. And they say, no, we're not turning over those men to you. So Israel bands together to fight against Benjamin, who also bands together to fight. Now, a quick summary. Israel comes to attack. Benjamin's pretty tough. Some have said another word for Benjamin is tough. Don't know about that, but they're tough. They push back, and Israel suffers great loss. They come and attack again, and they suffer great loss. And it appears that Benjamin, though one tribe, is going to win this victory. So Israel inquires of God. They have an assembly, and they inquire of God, and they say, shall we attack again? You know, I, who do you pull for here? <laughs> shall we attack again? And through the Levites, they say, God says attack. Now, I have to, I have to tell you, my heart flutters at, <laughs> flutters not the right word, my heart skips a beat to think that they're going to listen to the Levites because, I mean, there's a Levite that caused this whole thing to happen. But nevertheless, they make a strategy, which is really brilliant military strategy that has been imitated in history. And so they, they, they make a charge again, and the Benjamites come out, and they kill a few Israelis, and the Israelis begin to run, and the Benjamites are saying, ha, there they go again, let's go after them. So the Benjamites chase the Israelis, some distance from the city, and suddenly what happens? The Benjamite army, I mean the Israeli army, suddenly surrounds them and they realize they've been trapped. Then they turn around and look back toward their city and they realize that part of the Israeli army has gone behind them, invaded the city, and is now burning it to the ground. And the Benjamites realize we are finished. And so the Israelites slaughtered 
the entire tribe of Benjamin, men, women, and children, except for 600 men who escaped to the wilderness. And they burned their cities, killed their animals. I mean, it is total destruction. But shortly after this was over, Israel suddenly realized the gravity of their vengeance because they have almost totally wiped out an entire tribe of Israel and they suddenly begin to have second thoughts and they're suddenly upset with themselves for what they've done. There are 600 left who ran into the wilderness and after four months they return with no wives and therefore no women to marry and no future. Benjamin may not have all been wiped out. There might have been 600 survivors, but those 600 will eventually die. And without children, the tribe of Benjamin will come to an end. So Israel gathers before the Lord to weep for Benjamin. Isn't that amazing? After all that they've done, they gather together to weep for Benjamin. Now, just as a little side story, this, this is utterly amazing, but there's one group that didn't come, not an entire tribe, but, but the people who lived in Jabesh Gilead, they didn't come. They didn't come to weep. They didn't show up. So in another act of violence, Israel is angry at Jabesh Gilead. They're in the tribe of Gad. Remember G-A-D, Gad. So they send the army to Jabesh Gilead, and they kill everybody except for 400 virgin girls. They kidnap the 400 virgin girls from Jabesh Gilead and they bring them back and present them to Benjamin. But Benjamin is still 200 short. Now, the tribes of Israel refuse to give their own daughters to Benjamin. So they say to Benjamin, go to Shiloh and abduct 200 girls, and they did. They had a, a festival, and the maiden girls were dancing out beside the city, and they kidnapped 200 of them. So now you got 600 wives, and Benjamin will survive. Now you can take a deep breath on all that and realize that because of a, a raped and murdered woman, we see the murder of entire towns and the abduction of another town's young women. This is awful. I can't wait to get to Luke. But why is this here? It's here for a purpose. This shows Israel's spiritual darkness. And I have to pause and say, when God looks at our nation, do we appear any different to Him than what Israel was doing? How many babies did we kill last year? Well, there's, there's the purpose. Israel's spiritual darkness is unbelievable, and they need a king to deliver them. But what kind of king should he be? You see, the text keeps saying over and over and over and over again, Israel did not have a king, Israel did not have a king, Israel did not have a king, they didn't have a leader, everyone saw, did whatever they saw fit to do in their own eyes. 
And we know, because we know Scripture, a deliverer will come. Even without being called to come by sinful man, because man is not really seeking God. How do I know that? Romans 3, 11. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Wow. I hear people say sometimes, I was running after God. Now, sometimes you hear people say, I was running away from God. But I hear others say I was running after God. Now, it may have appeared that way to you, but you weren't running after God. He was wooing, calling, and drawing you, but you weren't running after him. And he drew you to himself, and you said yes to Jesus. Now, this deliverer will have to do it all, won't he? We can't do anything. We're not able. And... The incredible second chapter of Ephesians tells us all about that, but I'll just read verse 4. Because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. He did it all. You can't do anything. And how grateful we are. He will save us through his own death. He will purge us of evil. Only he can do that. So we see the last verse of Judges. And then we think, we think, thank you God. Thank you for pursuing me. Thank you for the grace you pour out upon us. Thank you for Jesus And I am so grateful. And by your grace and by faith in you, I will continue to be a reflection of Jesus in this world. Now, um, we're done. Go back with Judges. Don't ever forget. What is that? The cycle. Don't ever forget it. You, You find the people rebel. God is upset with them. God raises up enemies to oppress them. The people cry out and repent. Salvation comes through a chosen judge. God brings peace to the land. The judge dies and the people rebel. And over and over and over it goes. Now, let me conclude also by saying, reminding you that Judges is not a book of virtues focusing on inspirational stories. The Bible, unlike other so-called religious works, is not about following moral examples. It is about God showing his mercy and his long-suffering and working in spite of man's resistance. I'm reading my notes from the first few lessons. Ultimately, there is only one hero in Judges. It isn't Samson. It's God. He's the hero. So I close with reminder of the major themes of Judges. Number one. God relentlessly offers His grace to people who do not deserve it or seek it or often even appreciate it. Number two, God wants lordship over every part of our lives. It seems to me as we read about Israel 
that she never totally accepted or totally rejected God. Number three, there is tension between grace and law. Conditionality and unconditionality. For we see God demands obedience. He's holy. But at the same time, He makes promises to His people of commitment and loyalty to them no matter what. It's amazing. Do this and I'll do that, God says. And sometimes He says, I'll always be with you no matter what you do. Number four, we need continued spiritual growth in our lives. And the potential result of not being faithful is found in Judges. Number five, human saviors, like the judges, point through their own flaws and their strengths to one true Savior. We see them pointing ahead to the Christ who is to come. All the judges do that. Othniel, Gideon, Deborah, Barak, even in some sense, Samson. And the last theme of Judges is God is in charge no matter how things may look. And as I reflect upon the world of 2020, I am very grateful to be able to rest in that certainty and in the sovereignty of God. Well, there's more that could be said, but that's enough. So we're done, and I look forward to seeing you next week as we begin the Gospel of Luke. Just a little test. How many Gospels are there? Thank you. You can say that a little better. How many Gospels are there? Thank you. Um, what did Luke do for a living? A doctor? Okay, good. That, that's enough. No more tests. So I'm excited about our study of this, uh, what we call the third Gospel, the Gospel of Luke. Father, thank you for your goodness. Father, we read Judges and we're utterly amazed at your grace, at your mercy. We read and wonder, God, why did you mess with it? Why did you have anything to do with these people? But you showed your grace and your mercy again and again and again, and then we reflect upon our own society and we say, God, why would you have any mercy on us? But you do and you love us, and we're very, very grateful. So bless us today as we go forth to carry the good news of Jesus Christ. Bring us back together next Wednesday as we begin our study of the precious gospel of Luke. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Have a good afternoon.